Hello world, it's Siraj, and don't go anywhere. This is gonna be one of the most important videos you've ever seen in your life. So sit down and enjoy the ride. What I'm gonna do in this video is I'm going to build a voting app, okay? And let me demo it first, okay? This is my Hello World voting app. It's got three candidates, and I'm going to vote for one. I'm gonna pick one, Rama, and then click vote, and the vote shows up. Okay, there are three candidates in this app. I voted and then the vote shows up. And anybody who uses this app can vote and then that vote is gonna show up in the web app. So you might be thinking, wait a second, that's so easy, why are you demoing this? Because the difference between this voting app and a normal voting app is that this voting app is unhackable. That means that no one can modify the votes. The w okay, so it is hackable, but it's hackable in that you would have to have access to the 500 fastest supercomputers in the world combined. That's how much computing power you would have to have in order to hack this. So it's basically unhackable, unless you have that much computing power, which no one does. And this is called a decentralized application. Now you are probably used to building a centralized application. So am I, right? That's what we do. We, all of uh, web development, all of mobile development, all of it is centered around building centralized software. And I'm gonna talk about what centralized and decentralized are in a second, but that's the, that's the voting app we're gonna do. That's the demo we're gonna build today. I'm gonna go through setting up the environment and all the tools you need to build it, and then we'll, we'll build it ourselves. But first, let's talk a little bit about the World Wide Web, okay? So the web started off decentralized. What does that mean? If you were around in the early 90s, and I was a little baby, but you know, I was still there, uh, then if you wanted to make a website, you would just buy a server, right? You'd buy a server, that is a computer, you'd put it in your room, and then you would put your web page or your blog, they weren't even called blogs back then, but your, you know, whatever you wanted on your server, on your computer. And then you, you owned that server because no one was offering to host your data for you. What that meant was the web consisted of a series of nodes that were all linked together, a very neutral playing field where everybody owned their data or the data that they contributed to the World Wide Web. That's how the web started off. But what happened was, during the dot-com bubble, entrepreneurs realized that if you wanted to provide value on top of this neutral playing field, then you would create some service, right? You'd create some service, and that service would collect data and monetize it. And this pr proved extremely, extremely useful, right? We started hosting our data on GeoCities. If you remember, shout out to GeoCities, or any of the old you know, web hosting services. We started using you know, a whole hosts of services that were centralized. And what this meant was, you didn't have to buy your own server, you could just use these services and have a very thin client. But what's happened is, these services have become so massive that the web is now a, cent a set, is, it's, it's basically a handful of huge nodes. It's become centralized around a, a handful of, of huge nodes. And these nodes are Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, all data is routed through these, all data requests, all queries, data is routed through these central nodes. And this is bad, really bad, and here's why. 
We, of course, these services provide great value to our lives. We use them every day, right? We, I use Google and all these services every day. They make our lives easier. But it's bad for four reasons. The first reason is that it's shrinking our economy. What I mean by that is that in a good economy, we monetize more and more. But in a bad economy, we monetize less and less. And that's what's happening. Because data is the natural resource of our time. And because data is so centralized, that means the ownership of data is so centralized. There are less opportunities for people to generate value, to generate capital, because all the data is being collected, right? Data is how you make money, right? As a society, we are starting to value more and more data and less and less labor, right? Before we valued labor, now not so much. It's all about the data. And as this uh, economic trend progresses, it's going to only, um, the, the value of data is only going to increase over time. And because that data is so siloed right now, it's hard for normal people to uh, make money off of it. You would have to be a part of one of these big corporations to do so. And that's not the future that we want, right? Uh, so that's, that's a problem. The other problem is that, that this is just too much concentrated power, right? Knowledge is power, right? And knowledge is data. Information is power. Information is data. And it's, it's just too much of an overhead God view of what everybody is doing. For any of these companies to have Uber, for example, I had a friend who will remain nameless who worked at Uber who showed me God mode. And if you don't know, God mode is what they're, they are able to view all Uber rides that are happening obviously at the same time so they can they can basically predict you know who's having a one night stand or who is you know anything really personal details they can glean from this and that's just one of many 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 examples and that, that is just too much power for any any one entity to have and that's just not good because it doesn't matter what our intentions were this, this is a problem and we have no say in how our data is used, right? Our, once once we, we exchange our data, control of our data, for access to a free service. And what this means is they can do anything with our data. They can sell it to advertisers. They can use it to manipulate us. They can learn our personal details. They can sell it to the US government or any government, really. And we just have no say in how this goes. In the end, the last point is that we should be paid for our data. We, we need to, we are generating this valuable resource, this natural resource, and we should be paid for it. So a great book on this is called Who Owns the Future by uh, Jerome Lanier. The dude looks, you know, really wild. He's got these long dreadlocks and he, you know, big dude in Berkeley and he plays all these instruments. He's a really cool guy. But I mean, no one can talk about this in the way that Jerome Lanier can. He's one of the uh, pioneers of the internet. He now works at Microsoft Research as a virtual reality uh, researcher. And uh, yeah, so that's a great book. And also, I mean, I wrote the book on decentralized applications. I don't really talk about it that much because the code is deprecated at this point, but um, yeah, if you wanna see a, a great book on decentralized applications, then check out my book, it's an O'Reilly book as well. But the code is deprecated, but the ideas remain. I just don't have time to keep maintain that code. I'm making videos like a madman. Anyway, back to this. So let's, let's talk about this. Decentralized versus centralized versus distributed. What is the difference? So a centralized application is what we're used to. Google, Facebook, Amazon. What happens with a centralized application is we create a server and then we have a bunch of clients connect to that server. So everybody connects to these, this central 
central point of authority that defines the rules of how the network works. An example is Facebook, right? We, whenever we go to facebook.com, our browsers are acting as clients that, and our browsers are requesting data from Facebook and posting data to Facebook. It's a central server. And that's how pretty much all of the web works right now. It's easy, it was just easy to do, that's why we did it. And, but it's difficult to scale and it has a single point of failure, right? If someone takes down that data center, all of our data is lost. So that's centralized. Let me talk about distributed next, which is this right here, this image right here. So a distributed system is one where computation is spread out across the network. So um, actually, all of these services that we use are distributed. So a service can be both centralized, that means there is a central point of authority, and distributed, as in the computation is spread across multiple nodes. Because if you think about it, Facebook doesn't just have one giant server. They have several data centers that are scattered across the web, and data is routed through these servers depending on where you are. And uh, so these services are both centralized and they're distributed. And so, this, having a distributed architecture speeds up computing and it's just data latency, it increases bandwidth. There's a, there's a bunch of pros to having a distributed architecture. It's a little harder, but the, the pros are worth it and that's why these big companies do that. Now the last one I'm gonna talk about are decentralized systems, like the middle picture right here. So for a decentralized system, in a decentralized system, uh, you can take away one of those nodes and the network will still run. That means that no node is telling any other node what to do. There is no central point of authority. All nodes are equal in the network in terms of their authority. Uh, so Bitcoin is, a, is an example of, an, of a system, of a network that is both distributed because it's a time-stamped public ledger. It's a, it's a database where everybody owns a copy of the data, right? It resides on multiple computers, so it's distributed, and it's decentralized because if one node goes down, the network is still able to operate, right? You could take down, you know, 20 Bitcoin miners, but Bitcoin would still run. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a more resilient way of building software. It's faster software. The demand and failures are better handled. So examples of decentralized software are all of these cryptocurrencies that we, we look at. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin. These are all decentralized systems. And when it comes to decentralized applications, um, there's really only one that satisfies my criteria, at least right now, and that's called Steemit, and I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, Steemit is one. What does a profitable decentralized application look like? So if we look at the Web 2.0 stack, okay, let's look at the, the Web 2.0 stack. So anytime you want to build software, any, any kind of web app or mobile app, you are using these tools, right? There, there are certain parts of a website or an app that you need to use tools for, right? So for payments, you're going to use credit cards and PayPal, Stripe, some kind of API for monetization. You know, you'll, you'll develop some strategy like selling ads, paywalling your content, selling some good, uh, some goods, external data. You, you use a third-party API from some service, right? Like um, Clarify or any of these APIs. For file storage, you use Amazon S3 or Google Cloud, or, you know, what have you. And lastly, for computation, you use Amazon EC2 or Heroku or, you know, there's a lot of services out there because Web 2.0 has been around for so long. But now we are moving into Web 3.0. And that means that because of the invention of a certain set of technologies in order, uh, BitTorrent, 
which maximized bandwidth, Bitcoin, which allowed for decentralized consensus amongst a set of nodes in a system for the first time. Uh, several of these technologies, we are now able to make decentralized apps. So the web is kind of like a pendulum and it started off as centralized and it started off as decentralized, it moved to centralized and now it's moving back to decentralized. And that is the mission of, a many, of many developers right now is to re-decentralize the web. And so there are tools out there that will let us do that. Ethereum, Bitcoin, all these cryptocurrencies are for payments. The token model for monetization, now this is a really interesting bit and I'll talk about the token model in a second. Oracles for external data. Oracles are third-party data sources that you don't have to trust a human for. Like you have to trust um, Stripe or any of these APIs to provide valid data. But an Oracle is essentially a smart contract that has some data that you can trust, but it's run by machines. For file storage, you would use a network like the interplanetary file system, which I'll talk about, which is essentially a big distributed hash table. And lastly, for uh, computation, you would use Ethereum, for example, which is, uh, which is a decentralized virtual machine. It's kind of like a decentralized Heroku that you could push code to, but it doesn't live on one central server. It's, it's, it's decentralized. And so I put re you know, ready for these bottom tube and these are in progress, but really like if you think about it, you can use all of these. It's, it's just not gonna be at the, um, these tools aren't as evolved as you know, the web 2.0 tools, but you can use all of them for sure. So what, is, what does it look like? Well, there are four features that make up a profitable decentralized application. The first feature is that it's open source. So you might be asking, wait a second, if I open source my code, couldn't someone just steal it then? And now if you're using a traditional business model, yes, if, if a competitor can see your code, a lot of the times that is your competitive advantage. They could then just use that code and then fork it and then profit off of your code. But in a decentralized application, if you're using a token business model, an app coin model, then they could not take away from your network, right? Because it depends on the community of users. It depends on, um, it depends on the trust of your users and that your, user, your users are profiting from your model as well. So people want to join the network that has the most trust, that's built the most trust over time. Trust is a moving concept. It's not just established once. You have to continually prove and reprove that trust. And so people wanna go with the longest uh, chain of trust, so to speak. The second feature is the use of cryptocurrency. So this is a this is an image of of a some random uh, company's uh, timeline for for ICO or initial coin offering, but basically um, the use of cryptocurrency is this. So you know tr there are traditional models for monetization, right? Transaction fees, advertising revenues, but the cryptocurrency way is to do this. Okay, so you would allocate some scarce resource in your network using a scarce token, right? That scarce resource could be storage space, it could be images, it could be videos, some scarce resource, some scarce data that people are contributing to the network. That, and you monetize that with an app coin, some kind of token. And what happens is users need this app, app coin to access the scarce resource. And because of that, you're creating a supply and a demand, right? You're, you're, you're imposing this artificial 
artificial scarcity. And what that does is owners of the scarce resource get paid in app coins. So they get paid for their tweets and their images and the, whatever data that they contribute. And what this does is it makes the value of the app coin rise, right? So this app coin is kind of like a hybrid asset. It's both a stock, but it's also a currency. Uh, and so it's both, it's not, it's right? So you can, main, you can own it and you can just keep it as investment or you can use it and you, or, or you could just use, do both. Keep, it, keep a part of it as an investment and the other part as, as use of that, of, that, of that app. So that's one way and Bitcoin does this well, Filecoin does this well, like in the Filecoin network, miners of the scarce resource storage space get paid in Filecoin. And then people who want to store their data on the Filecoin network pay, have to pay Filecoin to access it. And so there is this market that's being created. And this can apply to any kind of decentralized application. And the scarce resource could be anything, right? So Steemit is a great example of a decentralized application, right? Because uh, there is, because there is a digital point system and people are getting paid for their scarce resource, which, which are their posts. As you can see here, they're the, the most valuable posts are the most paid posts. And uh, it's open source. It uses cryptocurrency under the hood, but it's got a dollar wrapper here. But anyone can pay in cryptocurrency. So Steemit is a great example of a, of a working decentralized application. The third feature is decentralized consensus. So what I mean by that is the ability for a network to all agree upon everything that's happening in the app. And only until very recently, this was not possible. Bitcoin proved that we could reach decentralized consensus using the proof of work algorithm. 51% of the nodes in the Bitcoin network have to approve a transaction before it's made valid and added to the chain of blocks, the blockchain. And not just, and as they vote, on the validity of a transaction, they also have to offer a proof of their computational work. And so what this means is they have to have, you have to have more computing power than 51% of the Bitcoin network in order to fake a transaction. And that's where the 500 fastest supercomputers phrase I talked about comes from. And so that's, that was one very popular way of reaching decentralized consensus. And so, Another thing is the blockchain alone isn't enough. It's not just like you just take an application, sprinkle some blockchain on it, and you're good. No, blockchain is a, is a big part of it. It is a data structure that you would use, but it's only a part of the stack. So for big files, you're not gonna store big files on a blockchain, right? For big files, you're gonna store that on some kind of distributed hash table. And one that I really like is called IPFS, which I'll talk about for feature four. But right, so you use a distributed hash table to store the data, and then you use you'd use a blockchain for app level constructs. These are time stamped constructs like usernames and status updates and high scores, anything that you need the network to agree on, agree upon. And so the reason you use a DHT and a blockchain is because the blockchain solves the major security issue of DHTs, which is not forcing nodes to trust each other on the validity of the data. So the DHT is more of like a dumb data store that no one controls and the blockchain helps the DHT reach consensus on the data, which lets you create applications on top top of it. Lastly, there's the idea of smart contracts, which are crypto economically secured 
bits of code, right? So in a normal piece of code, now here's an example. In a normal piece of code, you would upload it to some central computation engine like Heroku. And then you would trust Heroku to uh, compile that code and keep that code uh, un unmodified, just like you pushed. But in a smart contract, you don't have to trust any central source. You push it directly to a blockchain. Ideally, the Ethereum blockchain, because they, they have a Turing complete blockchain, which allows for loops and all sorts of application level constructs. But you would push some code to the Ethereum blockchain, and then it would run on that blockchain. And so everybody, every miner has a piece of that code, and it's crypto economically secured. So it's that what that means is it, it is a pre-agreed upon snippet of code that once deployed is unchangeable. It is immutable. Okay? So that's a smart contract. And lastly, for a, a profitable decentralized application, there is no central point of failure. That means that you just could not take this application down if you wanted to. So, right, so all these big countries that try to block access like China to applications like Facebook, they could not do that for, for a decentralized application. Why? Well, one way is, again, to use IPFS as your data store. So IPFS and I, I, I Juan, the creator of this, was my roommate when, when he was writing the paper. Uh, and there's a lot. There's a lot. I could, I could do an entire video series on IPFS. There's a lot here. But basically, it is, a it is meant to be a replacement for HTTP, which is the normal way in which we access websites on the internet right now. So for IPFS, there are certain technologies, and you can see them here, that, that make up its stack. But the idea for IPFS is that instead of IP addressing our web, instead of IP addressing our content, meaning we location address where some data is, let's content address it and access it that way. So instead of go going to a website by using its IP address, we would use its content address, kind of like Git, right? Like Git has those these hashes that represent data. So IPFS is essentially like a giant Git tree, a Merkle DAG, as, as they call it in IPFS where all data is linked together. And there's resiliency happening in the network as well. Bits and shards of data are replicated across multiple nodes. So you couldn't just take down some content address because there are multiple copies of it that are constantly being replicated inside of the network. Uh, so you could take down a website by just DDoSing it, right? But you could not DDoS an IPFS node because the data is replicated. It's not location addressed, it's content addressed. And there's a lot of reasons for creating IPFS that I could go into, but basically it helps us create a permanent web where links never die. So it's a more resilient web than HTTP. Okay, so, and it's, it's decentralized. So in, in, in general, these technologies are all a way for us to build more autonomous software. That is software that is independent of its creators. It, it's, it's almost like we're, you know, with AI and with blockchain and all of these very interesting new technologies, we are creating ways of removing the human from the loop because with humans there is always some kind of trust involved, right? Whether it's a taxi and you know having to trust a taxi driver to give you a fair price or using some kind of meter, right? So you offload that trust onto the machine and so you don't have to trust a human and it just makes the whole process, the whole system better. So with artificial intelligence and with blockchain, it's our way of making more autonomous 
software. It's almost like entities that live and exist independently on the internet. And this is very exciting. So I have this image right here. So just look at the one on the, the box on the left. Let me just talk about that. So the, the, the old way of creating organizations, companies, was to have humans at the edges and humans at the center, just humans. And those are boring old organizations. The next step is to have automation at the edges and humans at the center. So the assembly line is a great example. Robots are doing all the grunt work, but humans are overhead watching it. Now where we're heading towards are distributed autonomous organizations, which is what ADAPT is. It's another word for it. And that means automation is at the center, the trust is in the blockchain, it's in these distributed decentralized technologies, and humans are at the edges. So the community kind of supports this autonomous network. So like a decentralized Uber, the drivers would be at the edges of the network, but they would have more of a say in how the network operates than in a model like Uber, which is centralized. And lastly, you would have automation at the edges and automation at the center, and that is just the holy grail, right? Just pure AI. So in the end, these technologies are all really related. Lastly, before, we, before I go into the code, this blockchain and the ICO model is just a way for us to more closely approximate the, the, uh, the value generation and capital generation, right? That's what we're trying to do because a lot of times, Capital generation and value generation are just not aligned. What, that, what I mean is people do things that are not providing a lot of value, but they get paid a lot of money, like football players or Kim Kardashian or right, all these people who are making millions of dollars, but they're not really providing real value to society. Whereas these social impact causes that are fighting climate change and trying to solve cancer, they have to raise money. They're considered nonprofits. But with the blockchain model, you, we can more closely approximate this. So we can, we can give these people more money. They can earn as much money as they deserve. And so it's a really exciting time if you want to monetize um, more social impact causes like volunteering or scientific research. Like the people who are working on Ethereum are extremely wealthy. And some of the original scientists that worked on it, independent scientists who were doing research that was worthy of Turing awards, they were, they were they were incentivized with the Ether coin, which just skyrocketed in value, right? So it's a way to more closely you know, give value or capital to the people generating real value for the world. Let's get into our voting app. So this, the first step is for us to set up our environment. So what we're gonna do is we're going to just use Ethereum. And I know I talked about IPFS. That's, that's for maybe a later tutorial. Right now, just a very, very simple application. We don't really need a distributed hash table for this because it's so simple. It's essentially just a smart contract that we deploy to a blockchain and then we have a thin client that can access that smart contract on the blockchain, which is just HTML and JavaScript. So this is what it looks like, right? So we have the Ethereum blockchain, which is a blockchain like Bitcoin, except it's uh, Turing complete. So that means we can, there is a scripting language associated with this that we can deploy to, not just transactions, but code. We can have code run on the blockchain, and then we can access that code um, just like we would a server. And so this is called the Ethereum virtual machine. And then we, would, we, we have some thin client, which is called Web3.js, which we're gonna access this from, and we can do all of this from a web browser. So that's, that's, that's what it's gonna look like. So let's go ahead and set up our environment, okay? So the first step is for us to download um, 
the Ethereum test RPC. This is a this is an in-memory blockchain, and it's great for testing out uh, blockchain without having to download the actual blockchain. Okay, so we're gonna go ahead and install that by running npm install Ethereum JS test RPC and Web3. And now remember, Web3 is our thin client that lets us access the blockchain. But basically, test RPC is gonna let us create 10 test accounts that we can play with automatically. And these accounts are gonna be are gonna come preloaded with a hundred ethers. These are fake ethers. It's you also call them gas in Ethereum. Like this is how the network runs. Like you make transactions, and these transactions are how you deploy contracts to the blockchain, right? And so because it's happening on a test network, we don't have to pay anything at all, right? It's all free. But th this is on the test network. So it's gonna take a while, it's gonna you know, download all this stuff. And when it's done, we're gonna to go to step two, which is creating a voting smart contract. Okay, now it's done. All right, so, so that was our first step. And so now we're gonna create our voting smart contract. We're gonna use Ethereum's language, which is called Solidity for programming our smart contract. We're gonna deploy that contract to the Ethereum blockchain. And it's gonna consist of two functions. One is gonna return the total votes a candidate has received, and the other to increment the vote count of, for a candidate. And these deployed contracts are immutable. If we have any changes we wanna make, we would just deploy a new contract. Unlike in a regular web app where you could just modify the existing code, you can't do that. These, these, are, these are immutable pieces of code. So we would just upload a new contract if we wanted to make any changes. Uh, and, and then we could link them back to each other a la git if we wanted to. But to do this, we're gonna first install the Solidity compiler, which is also an NPM uh, a node package. So we can run NPM install SOLC, the Solidity compiler. And when we're done with that, we'll go ahead and, and code this thing, right? So let's write some solidity here, shall we? So we're gonna start off by saying, uh, we're gonna specify, we're gonna start off by specifying the version of the compiler that we want to use, 0.41. Now we're gonna create our contract. So we could think of this as kind of like a, a class in whatever your favorite object-oriented language is, okay? so. So this is our voting contract. Our first bit is to create a mapping field, which is the equivalent of creating an associative array or hash. And what this is going to do is we're gonna say, uh, we're gonna say uint eight, and this is a public, this is the number of votes we've received. It's a key of the mapping, the key of the mapping is the candidate name and is stored as the type, bytes 32, and the value is an unsigned integer to store the vote count. Okay, so that is our uh, number of votes received that we're gonna store here. Now, Solidity, solidity doesn't let us uh, pass in an array of strings in the constructor yet, so we're gonna use an array of bytes 32 bytes 32 uh, to store the list of candidates, right? And we want to have three candidates. So I'm gonna say candidate list. Then we're gonna create our constructor, our, con our constructor, which is going to be called once when we deploy the contract, right? So this is our voting constructor, right? For our class, it's gonna be of type block 32, and the parameter is are gonna be the candidate names. And then inside of the constructor, we can set our variable candidate list, candidate list to the parameter candidate names, which is how we initialize it. 
Okay, so then when we deploy the contract, we're gonna pass an array of candidates who will be contesting in the, in the election. And so once we have that, we can return a, the, we will create a function that's going to return the total votes for the candidate that, that a candidate has received so far. And the, again, the parameter is going to be the candidate and then it's gonna return the total votes as a, an integer. Okay, as an integer. And so yes, we can go ahead and return it, votes received, candidate. Now we're gonna we're gonna create. We, so so now we have two more functions. So the next function is going to be to vote for the candidate, right? So this is this is the function that increments the vote count for the specified candidate, and it's equivalent to casting a vote. So for voting for a candidate, so voting for candidate, that's going to be bytes thirty-two. For a given candidate, we want to say if it's a valid candidate. So if the candidate is valid. And we'll write that, that function last. So if this candidate is valid, votes received for candidate plus equals one, So if it, if, if it is a valid candidate, then and only then do we increment the vote count. If not, then we, then we don't. So this last function is gonna help us decide if a candidate is valid or not. So we'll say bytes32, candidate returns bool. Okay, so we're gonna say, okay, we're gonna create a loop, and now here is the Turing completeness coming out. Right, cause, because we can do loops. We couldn't do loops in uh, Bitcoin scripting language. And Satoshi did this for security reasons, but um, overall we need this if we're going to be able to build robust, capable uh, applications on top of it. So we're gonna say, go through the list of candidates, and if the given candidate is inside of the list of candidates, then and only then do we know that it is, a, in fact, a valid candidate, because we pass in a candidate name from our thin web client. Okay, so that's it for our uh, code. Let me return false at the end. Return false. Okay. That's it for our, that's it for our solidity code. And then for our client, our client is gonna be simple HTML, right? So we have some table that's gonna show the, th the three candidates, Rama, Nick, and Jose. And then we have um, uh, this on-click code that's going to say, once you type in a name like Rama and then you hit vote, it's gonna execute this function, vote for candidate. And then it's gonna update that. So in the JavaScript section, we can see what this code looks like right here. But what happens is, uh, we, say, we create a new Web3 object. We then retrieve that, that contract that we've deployed to the blockchain. And then we vote for the candidate or we, we retrieve the content that we deployed to the blockchain. And then we use that, we then, uh, we then update, uh, the, we then send the vote from the string, the string vote that we did in the web app to the blockchain to update the candidate. And then we can retrieve it from the blockchain and then display it in the HTML web app. So, uh, so then 
we can say, okay, so after writing our smart contract, we're gonna use Web3.js to deploy our app and interact with it. So our first step, let me make this bigger, is to open up the node console, and then we're gonna say, okay, so Web3, we're gonna initialize our Web3 object, require Web3, oh shit. Okay, hold on. Web3 equals require Web3. Okay, and so that, okay, so we did that. And so now we're gonna say Web3 equals new Web3, and we'll create a, an instance, a localhost instance for this to let us access the Ethereum blockchain, the test chain from HTTP. So it's kind of like an interface between HTTP and the Ethereum test RPC chain. Close. Okay, we did that. And now we can ensure that web3.js uh, initialized by querying the accounts on the blockchain. All right, we've, we've, we've queried those accounts. And lastly, we're gonna compile this contract by reading it. Hold on. We're gonna compile this contract by reading it directly. So I called it voting.solidity, converting it into a string. Got it. Then we'll say require the Solidity compiler. And then finally we can then compile the contract and deploy it by saying compile code equals solidity.compile code. Okay, and so once I've done that, then I can interact with the contract via the node.js console, or we could just interact with it directly from our um, HTML interface, which I already have here. So let's go ahead and interact with it from our HTML interface. So let's see, I'll just say, um, you know, Rama again to see if it up increments and it increments. Okay, so that is, that is my simple voting app demo. All the code for this is in the description. Check it out on GitHub. If you have any comments, uh, please feel free to comment. I love seeing comments uh, for, for my videos and uh, I hope you found this useful. Hey, I hope you really liked this video and if you did, please hit that subscribe button. For now, I've gotta go re-decentralize the web. So, thanks for watching.